Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Is FOMO post-pandemic over? Remember revenge travel? Expedia CEO Peter Kern in his first interview since announcing he's leaving the C-suite. It's a great company. I could do it forever, but that was not the plan. The plan was I'd you know, help set it up for the future, and we had some tough digging to do to get through and change ourselves, but we're in a great position now. And what do leaders do once they pack up the office? Author Jared Cohen followed U.S. president's journeys after the White House. The chapter is called Moving On because he's the only president who has managed to completely detach. And he seems happy, by the way. Plus, burning the midnight oil on Ukraine funding. The Super Bowl's big number. Makes it the most watched telecast since the moon landing. Squishmallows versus competitors and a possible strike in the skies. You think you could be a flight attendant in a service industry? I was no waiter way. of the year. That was at summer camp. Summer that camp. was at summer camp. It's Tuesday, February 13th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Snowing in New York, but it's okay. But not, not a lot. And by the way, they closed the schools everywhere. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, yeah. I'm not well, sure that was the right call, but let's see where we okay. are in a couple hours. I will it, say it, the kids are excited about it. It's this. so easy to close the schools now because of remote stuff. Yeah. Well, they're I mean, colleges making, do it at the drop of a hat. They're not making us doing re- remote. They're just saying, uh, go have a snow day. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah no, this is like a classic. Some people have remotes. This is the, you're supposed to go sledding if the snow works out, but at the moment it looks like it's practically raining. Well, it is was, supposed to go to about 1 o'clock, though. And it might, yeah. It's supposed to get heavy. It may get worse. It may get worse. It's supposed to get heavy, but... Uh, Which, for the kids, would be better. Yes. Right. Yes. Maybe not if you're traveling for business, but hey, take one for the team. The question is on passage of the bill as amended. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Baldwin, Mr. Barrasso, Mr. Bennett, Mrs. Blackburn, Mr. We're monitoring uh, the Senate this morning. Lawmakers voted last night to clear the final procedural hurdle for considering a $95 billion aid bill, which includes aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Emily Wilkins joins us now with more. Uh, Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Jevel. Well, yeah, that $95 billion package has now passed the Senate and with pretty strong uh, bipartisan support as well. You ultimately saw 70 senators go ahead and vote for this bill to pass. On this vote, the yeas are 70, the nays are 29. The bill, as amended, passes. Majority Leader. Well, Mr. President, it's been a long night, a long weekend, and a long few months. But a new day is here and our efforts have been more than worth it. That's more than we saw in some of these procedural votes, and that's really gonna put the pressure on the House and Speaker Mike Johnson to figure out what they're going to do with this bill. Now, Mike Johnson came out last night in a statement saying that the Senate had failed to meet the moment, suggesting that he's not going to be the one to move this bill to the House floor. However, there is a procedure by which if you can get a majority of members in the House to co-sponsor a piece of legislation, there is a process where that can actually come to the floor without leadership. So that's one of the things that's being discussed as a potential path forward. But we'll have to see exactly how this goes. Certainly, uh, this again, the strong bipartisan vote, uh, the seven members, uh, senators supporting, really does put the pressure on the House to move something here. Doesn't sound very hard to do that. 
Uh, Emily, how many, if you had all the Democrats, how many Republicans would you need? Well, it depends exactly how it comes to the floor. Um, you know, for some of these, they've done these suspension of the rules votes. Uh, they can bring it to the floor faster, but you need two-thirds support. Remember, too, there are some concerns about Israel funding among Democrats. This last vote in the Senate, you actually saw Bernie Sanders vote against the package because he has raised some concerns about that funding. We do expect some progressives in the House to kind of have a similar sentiment. So it's yeah. hard to say exactly how many Republicans would need to be on board. I think the biggest trick at this this point is that if Mike Johnson's not bringing it to the floor, how exactly is this going to happen? That's what I think a lot of folks are now trying to figure out. You really out. do need like a little, you know, the craziness of, of the, depending on where you're sitting and how far on one side or the other you are, either on, on the left or the right. It's, so, so the far left doesn't want to help Israel. So you can't count on all the, so you can't, can't count on all the Democrats, uh, even if it is a Republican. You need, I, I need it all, you know, I need a little diagram. Emily, thank you. Let's tell you about an interesting court case right now, Jazzwares, which is the Ber Berkshire Hathaway-owned maker of that popular Squishmallows plush toys, is suing Build-A-Bear Workshop. It's accusing the new Scooshers plush toy line of being a knockoff that infringed on its intellectual property rights. Build-A-Bear filed a countersuit saying that Scooshers are based on its existing plush animals and its advertising and marketing, they say, make clear who made those animals. Hmm. A little bit of a coincidence. Maybe not. <laughs> you need a, you always need a good, good patent people uh, on your company. I, I don't know, Squishy, I don't squishy know Bears. That's the thing, uh, is that a protectable product? That's what I mean. Product? If you look like you're trying to trick people, maybe you could get in some trouble with that if it looks like you're trying is to it, But with, is the name is, is not the name? Oh, the, the new, it's not the same name, but it's, right. it, I think if you look at the, how it's written, right. I think it's written in the same sort of pillow we Oh, want. yeah. Uh, so they sort of knew what was going on. They sort of know, but it, I think you have a lot of leeway. You do, unless, unless you got I think you have to prove that you're really narrow trying, patents. intentionally trying to confuse You need right. a patent, you know. How long, it probably, you could probably, on squishy stuffed animals, you could probably do a couple of hundred pages on a patent, which you might, that might be narrow enough where, where you it know, you'd have to. Patent or a trademark? It's a trademark. Yeah, I guess it's both. It's yeah, yeah, trademark. trademark. Uh, no one's giving you a patent for a patent. For squishy. Yeah, well. For the squishy. But intellectual property, trying to protect it. Yes. Intellectual yeah, property, you need. Though, probably. That's why, you know, lawyers exist. Right. Well, Otherwise, other think reasons. how life would be. It would be much simpler, but you do need lawyers occasionally. We're talking about the Super Bowl. An average of 123 million people watch the Super Bowl across all platforms. That's according to some initial data coming out of Nielsen, Adobe, and Adobe Analytics that makes it the most watched telecast since the moon landing. CBS says the final Nielsen numbers will be out later today, and of course we'll bring them to you uh, as we discuss what it all means. I was just going to look up the population of the United States in 1969. It was only 202 million people at that point. And yeah. We have, you know, games in Germany and England, and there's going to be one in South America, NFL games. I'm not that impressed. I mean, how many people? Billions of people. Eventually. But for the no, Super there Bowl, are billions right now, is, but yeah. But yeah. For, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. And they said it was the largest ever on a single channel. Right. Um, because when you simulcast things, you can get big, bigger numbers. I want more. I want a billion for Squawk Box. We got a ways okay. to go. We got some work. We have a ways to go. Thousands of drivers uh, for ride-sharing platforms like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash—they're going to be striking across the U.S. That's going to happen 
on the day of love, on Valentine's Day. Mm. The group says they are seeking fair pay, accusing the platforms of taking disproportionately high amounts of commissions, saying they're not getting the love back, and they plan to pick it outside of airports and Uber offices as well. <laughs> Meantime, uh, thousands of flight attendants plan to pick it today. This in an effort to pressure carriers to raise pay and improve worker conditions. Not going to help, by the way, given the weather that's happening. They're calling it a day of action. Flight attendants will be picking in major cities in the U.S., also in the U.K. The pickets are not expected, they say, to disrupt flights. Let's see about that. The weather might do that for them. I think they... I want to pay them more, I think, I decided. I watched what they put up with, Yeah, they man. put up with some real jokes. Now they're putting up with people crapping right in the aisles. I mean, it, it, anything goes on these planes now. Anything goes. And they're expected to be bouncers. Yeah. Lady couldn't get in the bathroom the other day. She just squatted and started taking a leak right in there. In front of you? Not in front of me. I read about it. Oh. Just, I, I mean, it's, can you imagine? You'd be, a, you'd be a horrible. You couldn't be a flight attendant. You Are you kidding me? You think you could be a flight attendant in a service industry? I was no waiter way. of the year. That was at summer camp. In summer that camp. was at yes. summer camp. Summer camp. I, w- I won waiter of the year. You don't I think I could handle... I was a waitress and a bartender, and I could not handle I could handle some no of these, these. No, you would. You would smack them upside the You think head. I could? No. No, you could not. And I don't know what would happen if you were my passenger. That would be <laughs> the real problem. you get them kicked off. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Expedia CEO Peter Kern started his job in April of 2020. That was a tough time for travel, but the stock of the company is up over 130% since. A lot has changed in four years. YOLO's over. So the post-COVID thing is slowing down, and now we are actually accelerating because of all the work we did during COVID. How he's turned things around and why he's turning things over to his successor. Now we're giving it back to the hands of a great management team that I helped create, and uh, Ariane's going to be terrific. The Expedia CEO's first interview after announcing his departure, right after this. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Up and Becky, Q. All right, welcome back, everybody. Expedia reported its fourth quarter results last week. The online travel company beat estimates on both the top and the bottom lines, but the stock fell over 19% on soft guidance for the company for 2024. The company also announced that the CEO, Peter Kern, will be stepping down. Joining us right now in his first interview since that announcement is Peter Kern himself. Of course, he's the CEO and vice chairman of Expedia. When uh, Ariana Gorin takes over as CEO in May, Peter will stay on. He's going to be vice chairman there, too. Um, Peter, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So this was not um, a good reaction uh, to to what you all (laughs) had to say last week. And you did talk about a lot of trends, some softening demand, tough comps, different things that you're seeing. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think, uh, you know, people weren't necessarily expecting me to be stepping down, per se. I hadn't, uh, you know, my contract was up, but uh, we hadn't talked about it. So I think that came as a little bit of a surprise. But uh, the guidance we feel is strong. You know, the macro environment uh, is softening around the world. Uh, It has been in the North America, Western Europe has slowed down. You know, they were the first ones out of COVID. They were the first to slow down. and Asia, Latin America are also now slowing down. So the macro is tougher. You know, travel doesn't just grow to infinity. It grows at a modest rate in a normal situation. So the so, over. So the post-COVID thing is slowing down. And now we are actually accelerating because of all the work we did during COVID to revamp our company, to totally improve our technology stacks, rebrand, uh, launch OneKey. I was here when we launched OneKey, uh, our new loyalty program, which is doing great. So 
we're actually going to outperform the market, we believe, um, but the market is slowing somewhat, so that's just a reality. And I think the market understood that, most of the market. We can dig a little deeper into that in a moment. Yep. Why, why are you stepping down? It's been a long four years. I started during COVID, and um, the COVID part, in retrospect, was not the hardest part. We've been doing a, a real transformation of the company, the entire technology side of the company. Uh, we had 22 brands all over the world. We've consolidated down to three or fewer in all of our markets. Uh, we've changed how we go to market. We've changed how we understand the customer. So it's just been a huge lift, and we've turned over a lot of people in the company. Uh, we're really a new company set up to grow, but when I, I came off the board for this stint, uh, I thought four years would, would do the trick, and uh, fortunately it has. And uh, now we're giving it back to the hands of a great management team that I helped create, and uh, Arion's going to be terrific. So this was almost like a private equity job. You come in and fix things? And you know, I, I think it was a job till I was done doing what I needed to do. And uh, it's a great company. I could do it forever, but that was not the plan. The plan was I'd you know, help set it up for the future, and we had some tough digging to do to get through and change ourselves, but we're in a great position now and feeling really good. Um, maybe why not signal it to Wall Street sooner? I mean, the idea that it came as such well, a surprise. Well, Wall Street knew when my contract was up. Right. I think, uh, you know, people didn't know quite where we were in this transformation. A lot of things accelerated in the back half of the year, particularly on the technology side. So it's been uh, really exciting to see what we're capable of doing. And until we saw that, until we knew it had taken hold, you know, what, you're never is, quite what sure. What is that piece for those who don't understand it? Yeah, so, we, on the so imagine we acquired you know, many companies over the years, different technology stacks, right. different messes that they each had, inefficient because you need different people managing different stacks. So we've been over the course of three years now consolidating all of that into one single front-end stack. So Expedia, Hotels.com, Verbo, and any other brand we have in the world are all on that stack. And that gives you amazing uh, breadth to do testing, learning, go with great speed, uh, we just launched our, a car capability, car rental on Hotels.com. That used to be inconceivable for us. It took us a few weeks to do, and now we could do that anywhere in the world, should we choose to. Equally, when we test something that works great, a new map, a new capability, a new merchandising thing, new search, it can go everywhere all at once. So the speed and agility it gives you and the opportunity to just go fast, innovate for the customer, deliver new, right. new capabilities is just massive. So, there's Just always a, a certain amount of friction when you're combining so many brands, when you're trying to change the back end, especially on a technology platform. Yeah. You know, I know of a lot of places that have tried to consolidate with other uh, units and it's have hard. tried to use the same back end. Um, what did you learn along the way? Well, it's always messy. You have to really have a team that is you know, willing to deal with the mess and kind of be tough and get through it. Uh, it doesn't go how you think. Um, and you have to be willing to go backwards to go forwards. There's no free lunch on this stuff. So uh, we had to take some licks you know, along the way, and it was not perfect at all. But if you're tenacious and you have a team that really wants to do it, and we had to change ourselves a little bit to be technology first as well. We're about 50% technology and product now, where 2019, 30% of our people were that, and we had way more Dude, there's, people. There's probably 10 places I wouldn't go right now. I mean, you're, you're saying it's not, it's, it's, that YOLO sort of, that the, the urge to yep. get out. But I don't think, I mean, I've, been, I've seen Americans warned about the Bahamas, Mexico, uh, Eastern Europe, Middle East. Uh, I, I'm not even sure I'm very welcome in China right now. Uh, does that factor into to people's plans, do you think? Well, all those things factor into people's plans, but they tend, if they want to travel, they, They're go, go, somewhere they go where they can go. Last summer we they saw Europe explode. Yeah. This year, I think 
more Americans will travel more domestically and Europe will settle down, but China's going to go into Europe. So there's always different pockets of people that can go different places. And yeah, you never know about the geopolitical situation. We got Not elections great. coming, there's yes. all kinds of stuff. But, um, but you know, people love to travel. Americans certainly I, love to travel. I know you've been developing AI capabilities, but how concerned are you that one or two or three of these other large language models or even small language models are going to usurp the business either they're going to have to have an api into your system but maybe they go into somebody else's system or they i don't yeah. know if they build their own but you know when is the day going to be where i'm going to say hey i'm going on this vacation here are the days mm -hmm. go and it literally just does it from beginning to end well i think look you can ask now that or you can ask it on our app, you know, I want to go to Egypt tomorrow and where should I go for a seven day trip and it'll give you suggestions and you could book it on our app. It's pretty easy to do. Uh, the days of the large language, you know, the idea that Google or, or ChatGPT will take over and you won't need us or doesn't really work because we're the ones who have live pricing and availability and your travel history and we can personalize for you. For you to teach it to really understand Andrew, it's going to take a lot of time. No, a lot of time. Yeah, especially for Andrew, I assume. But, yeah. A lot of time. But we can understand your booking history. We can know you like boutique hotels or you like the beach or whatever and we can provide that kind of personalization. So I think we are among the best equipped to help you with that and we're going to use generative AI but we're also going to use other kinds of AI to personalize the experience, show you the pictures that are relevant to you, do everything to make it as easy for you as possible. I personally believe that most consumers like the part of research. We really don't want the easy button. Once in a while a place we don't understand or have never been we I want never that, trust the easy button. Yeah, but we ask our friends, we do research, right. we read articles. Right. It's part of the fun of it. So there's a, going to be a blend, and maybe not when you need to go to Omaha on business. You'll just push a button and say, do my trip again. But again, we'll know your last trip, and we'll be able to replicate that really easy for you as compared to you know, some model out there in the world that's just generic. Wow, mean to Omaha. <laughs> Peter. No, I love Omaha. I'm just saying, simpler trip. Thank you very much. We really appreciate Thanks. you coming in. Good to be here. Thank you. See you. Thanks. Next on Squawk Pod, 45 men, yeah, all men, have served as U.S. president over 46 administrations. What did they do next? Lessons from life after the White House with author Jared Cohen. If you fancy yourself a lifelong founder, you should follow the path of Thomas Jefferson, who at 82 years old goes on to found the University of Virginia. You know, if you're somebody who there's some sort of dream job you've always wanted to have, but the timing wasn't right or the circumstances weren't right, you should look at William Howard Taft. History and interviews with presidents on leaving the Oval Office and how you can start your own next chapter. We'll be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick. Uh, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Our next guest is out with a new book this morning. It's titled Life After Power. It's fascinating. Seven presidents and their search for purpose beyond the White House. Joining us right now is Jared Cohn. He's the author of five bestsellers. Uh, he founded and ran a unit with an alphabet called Jigsaw. Before that, he worked in the State Department, was an early advocate of Twitter as a tool for diplomacy. Today, he's the president of global affairs at Goldman Sachs. And this is a fascinating book, Jared, because you take a look at um, usually people take a look at what happened during people's presidency. This is actually so much about what happens after. And I, I want to talk to you about the book. I also am hoping you can maybe put some of this in today's context, not just about presidents, but, you know, we have so many CEOs who come on who are thinking about what's supposed to happen 
afterwards. People don't spend a lot of time thinking about the afterwards part. No, and look, this elusive question of what do you do next after you've accomplished what's supposed to be the most significant thing in your life, it's a very persistent and difficult question that we have to ask throughout our entire lives. I think CEOs have a lot in common with ex-presidents. You know, Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers, you know, pondered the question of if it's a good idea to have half a dozen men who'd risen to the presidency wandering around the rest of us like discontented ghosts. And I think that you know, more than 200 years later, we kind of have an answer to that question, which is successors can either be a tremendous partner, uh, or you know, ex-presidents can either be a tremendous partner to their successors, or they can be a bipartisan nuisance. Okay, so of the, the presidents that you, you feel like you studied in this, which ones do you think really excelled uh, afterwards, and which ones really failed and why? Look, they, they all had one thing in common, which is they had something they were tremendously principled about. You know, the problem is in the post-presidency, you get stuck in the past, you want to settle old scores, you get kind of bogged down in vanity. The one that spoke to me the most was John Quincy Adams, because he goes on to serve nine terms in the House of Representatives. And in this much lower station, he kind of wanders around, doesn't know what he's going to do, but he becomes passionate about the right to petition. And as they try to gag him from reading petitions about uh, abolitionism, he right. finds that in a much lower station, he achieves a much higher calling, and he mainstreams what at the time was a very fringe and radical abolitionist. Okay, so I read, the, I read this part of the book, and I, but the question that I had actually about him is, is there any part of you that says that he should have just walked away, he should have stepped away, that the reason he was there was because he just couldn't give up, even though he was at a lower station, he couldn't give up the power of being in Washington, being at the center of it all? Look, presidents don't like giving up power. Look at our you know, 2024 election here. This is going to be likely the first and only time since 1892 that you have a rematch between two presidents of the United States as the nominees of the two major parties, right? Why? You, know, you have the two oldest candidates in history eclipsed only by themselves four years ago. You have two presidents that don't want to give up power. It's been persistent. Of the 45 men who served as president 46 times, minus the ones who died in office, it's hard to let go, right? It's hard to imagine how do you top that last thing that you did. Right. Who's done it the most gracefully? I, I can think of some people in recent history, but of all the ones you studied. Look, I, my, the, the seventh chapter in the book looks at George W. Bush, and I spent about so eight hours interviewing him up in Kennebunkport in, 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 in 2020, and the chapter is called Moving On, because he's the only president who has managed to completely detach. And, and some of it, happy, by the way. Which, what, seemingly so. Yeah, what yeah, do you think that that's about? Well, look, some of it is unique to him. He, he's, he's a tremendously disciplined individual, and so, you know, he, he's a chapter guy. So, you know, each chapter of his life has a kind of beginning, middle, and end. And when I sat down with him, he said, look, you know, when it's over, it's over. You can't long for what you can't have, I don't miss it. And presidents talk about this one president at a time principle, um, but George W. Bush has a real reverence for it. And you see, he never mentions his successor by name. He never weighs into the political debate. And what's interesting is he's now been a painter longer than he has been a politician. <laughs> and through painting, he's found this kind of post-presidential voice that allows him to advance certain causes without undermining his success. Okay, so for those who are watching, who, are, who think that they're in their last year or two of whatever their role is, what are they supposed to do mentally? Maybe it was what Bush was doing, but are there others that you looked at that you could see that set themselves up for, either, for the, whatever that next chapter is in the right way? So one of the things I try to do in the book, each, each of the seven presidents represents a different model, right? So if you fancy yourself a lifelong founder, you should follow the path of Thomas Jefferson, who at 82 years old goes on to found the University of Virginia. Um, you know, if you're somebody who, you know, there's some sort of dream job you've always wanted to have, but the timing wasn't right or the circumstances weren't right, you should look at William Howard Taft, who in his last 10 years of life became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and at the very end of his life said, I hardly remember I was ever president. So each of the seven presidents gives a different model 
and I think readers should figure How out which one relates to How many of them, are always grumbling a little bit about yeah. the way they're being perceived? I mean, Hoover is an example of this. Um, there are others in the book that you sort of get the sense that they're sort of living with this agita all the time. Oh, yeah. But you mentioned Herbert Hoover. My, one of my favorite lines is Herbert Hoover you know, was asked at, at, at uh, I think, 88 years old. He lived to be 90. Um, how he dealt with his critics, he said, I outlived the bastards. Right. And I think there's something <laughs> there's something <laughs> there's something to longevity. But look, the change of pace is very difficult when you transition out of these jobs. The most important thing somebody can do is force yourself to separate from your successor as much as possible. Figure out what principle you have that you want to double down on. Um, it's very, very troublesome and, and, and problematic when you look back, and George W. Bush is the only one, even among the successful ex-presidents, they all grumble, they all gripe, they all throw you know, kind of political Molotov cocktails at their successors. It's a right. question of whether they also find their own thing to do. What about CEOs who come back for a second round? Look, the story of Grover Cleveland, part of the reason I wanted to focus on his comeback, one, you know, it's hard to argue with, you know, a life after power that brings somebody back to the presidency. But Cleveland's story is a cautionary tale. You know, he throws away the presidency in 1888 on principle. And he's, by the way, never been happier because he's got this sort of young wife. He's starting a family and he doesn't want to become president again. But much like somebody else, he believes he's the only Democrat who can defeat the Republican. Uh, and so he runs again in 1892, and he leaves office after winning the popular vote three times in a row, less popular than he's ever been, older than he's ever been, more overweight than he's ever been, less happy than he's ever been. And he ends up you know, having a second post-presidency that's far less fulfilling than the first one. Is that a, that a lesson for Trump or a lesson for, for Biden here? I mean, look, it's a lesson for both of them, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's again, this question of what to do with ex-presidents. Um, you know, we're in this situation. We've gone, we've gone so politically off script since 1892. We're not supposed to have these presidential rematches. And so I think it's a good time to ask the question, what should we do with our ex-presidents? Right. I thought it was a lesson for Bob Iger. Uh, that could be too. Uh, Jared, uh, congratulations. It's a fascinating book. I can't wait to read. The, I'm sure you'll be doing an updated version, maybe with, with Biden and Trump eventually, and that'll be uh, an interesting one. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you. it. Appreciate uh, it. The book is called uh, Life After Power. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. We're still talking about that, that last segment. Yes, we've been talking through the What do you do if you leave the presidency and you're so old, you, there's no life after the presidency? Not, but, mentioning, but could, not mentioning any no, names, but... You could say but the same thing for anybody in a high-powered job, anybody in a seat. People don't stay in, in high-powered jobs till they're in their mid-80s. You seen 60 Minutes? You mean uh, <laughs> Andy. <laughs> I send people that. He, he died a month after he retired at 92. Reason to never retire. And I'm going to beat that, Sorkin. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern, and please follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. 